0: to new books and Buddhist studies with Alex Carroll. In his recent expose, Mick Mindfulness, How Mindfulness Became the New Capitalist Spirituality, published by Repeater Books in 2019, Ronald Purser, PhD, takes a hard look at the mindfulness movement that has taken society by storm. Purser opens the book by questioning elements of the movement that have led to its success its scientific credibility, its secular facade, the prevailing discourse in society around stress, and other topics. Purser's main concern, however, is that mindfulness is being used to reinforce the capitalist system by absolving companies of any responsibility for its negative consequences, for example, work-related mental health problems, and shifting full responsibility onto the shoulders of the individual. Purser also points out that mindfulness is being used in ethically questionable ways in schools, the U.S. military, and national governments. Purser ends the book by discussing his vision of a revolutionary, socially-minded, collective-based form of mindfulness. Full of humor and eye-opening anecdotes, mindfulness is a thought-provoking book that forces readers to look at mindfulness in a new light. Ron, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Thank you. So I'd like to begin by asking about your professional background and what motivated you to write this book? Well, uh, I've been a professor of
1: management at San Francisco State University for about 24 years. And before that, I was at Loyola University of Chicago for about seven years. Um, So I think that has partly uh, a lot to do with why I wrote the book, being situated uh, in the field of management. I'll get to that in a minute. But Um, I felt there was an urgent need uh, for a book that presented more explicitly uh, a critical account of the mindfulness movement, at least to balance out the the overly positive presentation uh, in our uh, media representations uh, of mindfulness, popular self-help writing, and so forth. So I I saw the book uh, in a way as kind of like a public intervention to uh, kind of systematically uh, questioned the uh, exaggerated claims, uh, the rhetoric, uh, also to expose the ways that mindfulness was uh, refashioned into an instrumental technique for personal gain. So that, that was sort of the impetus there. Um, so in a way, I, I don't see the book as necessarily a critique of mindfulness itself, but more of an expose on how it became uh, commodified and then um, sold as uh, kind of a panacea or cure-all. Uh, so that, that was pretty much my uh, motivation.
0: And if you could present an overview of the book um, that would allow a reader to understand uh, what they can expect to find in their copy, what what would you say? Well, uh,
1: the overview of the book is how mindfulness became a fashionable, marketable commodity and uh, sort of presented as a spiritual quick fix, hence the title "Mick Mindfulness." Uh, so, I mean, there's several layers in the book. One is sort of the crass layer uh, of just pure uh, commodification of mindfulness in terms of how it's even used now to to sell uh, products. Of course, uh, the example I use in the book is uh, Kentucky Fried Chicken uses has a video about uh, its comfort zone, a pot pie based meditation system. And then there are over hundred thousand books on Amazon uh, with either the word mindfulness or mindfulness title. And then last time I Googled the mindfulness, there were like 210 million results. So uh, it's everywhere uh, and it's being sold uh, in the marketplace like any other commodity, uh, almost like a brand or a, a marketing, a lifestyle. And, So that's sort of the the surface layer of it. But uh, the book kind of dives deeper into um, how mindfulness uh, became one of the most uh, desirable uh, techniques uh, to respond to anxieties of late capitalist society. Uh, And uh, so part of my analysis is to also bring in uh, a critique uh, of how it's been recontextualized in uh, Western consumer society, uh, kind of driven by a neo-political uh, uh, ethos, and how that has uh, how mindfulness has served more of a, a ideological function uh, in society at large, and so that uh, then unfolds into looking at how mindfulness in various sectors has been uh, deployed, uh, whether it would be in corporations or public schools and politics uh, in the US military. Um, So that's pretty much uh, an overview of the book.
0: All right. And in your book, you say that you yourself are a longstanding Buddhist practitioner. You've presumably practiced some form of mindfulness uh, yourself for some time. And you also admit that uh, mindfulness might have its time and place outside Buddhist context, such as for medical or therapeutic purposes. So exactly what form of mindfulness do you take issue with in the book?
1: Well, I take issue with mindfulness, uh, particularly how it's used uh, as a tool for placing the burden of social ills, uh, stress in our society, uh, and how it uh, responsabilizes individuals to take full responsibility uh for their mental health well-being and um so that's what I take issue with is the way that it's often uh, presented and framed uh as a uh individualized uh technique an individualistic technique in many in many cases a do it yourself technique which uh doesn't necessarily have to rely on anyone except yourself to uh Manage your own uh, anxiety and stress and emotions. So, in that sense, um, I, I really take more of a, an ideological uh, aim uh, at these practices because ideologies um, uh, are, uh, in in some ways, quite uh, hard to see when we're immersed in them. And but they they're representations uh, of our social worlds, and uh, and and but they can also misrepresent our social worlds, and so mindfulness has become a a practice um, that uh, is uh, complicit in many ways with neoliberal values. And so if you look at the mainstream discourse um, uh, in mindfulness rhetoric, it's always the individual who has to adapt and has to cope. Um, You know, happiness is a skill, for example. Happiness is a self-contained skill that we can uh, learn to exercise uh, our mental muscles, just like going to a gym, which are both incidentally very individualistic uh, activities. In a way, um, mindfulness has become part of of, of therapeutic cultures too, which um, are entangled in this notion of what uh, Nicholas Rose calls the side disciplines. And the side disciplines um, use institutional authority and expertise to uh, extend a government uh, in a way that uh, individuals become self-governing of their own behaviors. And and so uh, mindfulness can be seen as a technology uh, of the self in terms of uh, Foucault's uh, understanding of it. And um, from that point of view, you can see why it's very, very uh, popular and appealing because it's... Uh, it's uh, seen as very benign and very benevolent and i'm not denying at all that people do get benefits from mindfulness but um i'm looking at the other side of the coin um which is how uh these tools uh, can serve uh the interest of corporations and neoliberal uh, aims and political goals so that's uh Kind of what I take issue with.
0: All right, just to follow up with that, you said you have a problem with the term "the mindfulness revolution" and call mindfulness the new capitalist spirituality. Uh, what do you mean by that exactly? Well, uh, yeah, I've always, uh,
1: I've always uh, kind of chuckled when I when I heard the term "revolution," mindfulness revolution, uh, because when you hear that term, you always think of oh, okay, what's uh, what's been overturned here, um, what's been radically changed, and. Um, if it is a revolution, it's an extremely conservative one, um, because it's worked uh, cooperatively and collaboratively uh, within institutions by uh, uh, by using uh, uh, the cultural capital of. It's an elite-led uh, movement in many ways, as uh, Jamie Kuczynski's, uh her book uh, "The Mindful Elite," has already documented that that it's an elite movement that has been able to uh, gain access to major institutions such as schools and the military and corporations and hospitals and government agencies. Um, and, and, and so it has not really offered any sort of uh, challenge uh, uh, to these uh, institutions that um, oftentimes are uh, quite dysfunctional, uh, quite uh, uh, wrought with uh, power, uh, inequities and so forth. And so it's very apolitical in a way, it kind of, uh, it, it avoids kind of, uh, any kind of vision of the social good. Um, it's kind of a laissez-faire approach, you know, let the market decide what's, uh, you know, what will, uh, be valued. Uh, and so from that point of view, it kind of follows the history of capitalist spiritualities as, uh, uh, Jeremy Carrot and Richard King have written in their book, selling spirituality. Um, So there's a long tradition of of colonization and commodification of Asian spiritualities that um, end up uh, uh, producing a highly individualistic uh, set of techniques that are uh, accommodating and accommodated to the dominant cultural values within these institutions. So from that point of view, this highly individualistic, Highly individualistic spirituality resembles, in many ways, uh, kind of the ideal neoliberal subject, and it, it functions then uh, in a way that uh, kind of reorients the goals uh, to a highly individualistic realm in in many ways. So that uh, is seen then as a uh, as a tool that can help us cope uh, with uh, the anxieties of uh, of capitalism. And it's so easily and has been so easily assimilated into the marketplace that, you know, that's why I s- started to question, what, what revolution? What revolution are you talking about? I didn't see any revolution. I saw more uh, kind of a quietist surrender to the status quo of, of our major institutions.
0: And then somewhere in the beginning of the book, I think around chapter two, you start using the term neoliberal mindfulness uh, and assert that there's a tight fit between m- the mindfulness movement and neoliberal ideology. I think some people might find this a little perplexing. You know, how can someone sitting quietly in the room practicing meditation be contributing to the the reproduction of the neoliberal capitalist system?
1: Well, uh, part of it is that when you instrumentalize and privatize a practice such as mindfulness, um, it forecloses other alternatives in terms of offering a radical critique of the causes and conditions of the social or- origins of our suffering or the political, economic origins of our suffering. So, um, you know, it basically is sending the message that it's the individual that has to, to learn how to adapt. Um, and so there's uh, very little attention paid uh, then to collective action. So it's totally aligned in, in many ways with a neoliberal kind of uh, ethos. And what what you hear uh, often is, uh, especially from mindfulness teachers, is that the only real change comes from within. So therefore, um, their theory of change is quite ineffectual when it comes to, if you really want a revolution, changing uh, social, political, cultural uh, structures uh, and and systems. So the idea is that because you're placing the burden of change back onto the individual to harmoniously try to... uh, accept and adapt uh to external conditions so it may not it may not look like there's any so-called harm being inflicted on people of course there's not exactly harm being inflicted but there is sort of a blind spot that's being cultivated uh with these practices um because stress is not just in in human body it's also in the body politic and so uh by uh, constantly encouraging people to go to turn inwards, kind of the inward turn, that to me is, uh, you know, uh, a political stance. It's, uh, it's basically saying, you know, let's, uh, let's, let's just turn inward and uh, do the best we can to adapt to these conditions, which um, are often uh, the source of, of the stress to begin with.
0: Speaking of stress, you argue that the way contemporary society understands the concept of stress is a little misguided and that this has contributed to the success of the mindfulness movement. Um, but everyone can give concrete examples of particularly stressful moments in their life, and we all recognize what the other person is referring to. So what's wrong with the way that we understand stress? Right. I sort of discovered this.
1: Uh, uh, I wasn't really planning on uh diving into this area of research in the book, but just the the more that I did, the more I realized that uh, the narrative, the dominant narrative of stress is one of uh, privatization. So the privatization of stress uh, is basically saying that, and and John Kabat-Zinn actually, uh, I think, expresses this uh, in his diagnosis of society basically is saying that our cultural uh, malaise is uh, due to the fact that we're an ADD nation. That's what he uh, mentions in, in a couple of his writings. What that does then is that it basically provides an, an analysis that the dominant view of stress is, is that we, we're, we're just simply making the wrong lifestyle choices. So it relegates it to an individual lifestyle problem rather than seeing stress as a much broader phenomena that's linked to social, political, and economic forces. And uh, Dana Becker, um, she uh, wrote a book, One Nation Under Stress, and she coins the term that this is the doctrine of stressism. uh, When we see stress as, um, or we frame it uh, purely as a lifestyle choice issue or a or, or it's biological, uh, kind of like a biological reductionism um, that stress is all inside our head. So therefore, it's just a matter of autonomous individuals to 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 resolve it and to manage it. So, um, my friend uh, Alec Caring Lobel, uh, he he refers to this as it's like an analogy he he uses is that uh, you know stress is like just having a common cold, you know. Uh, there's no cure for it. So, you know, you just have to manage the best you can when you have a, have a cold. So in a way that's sort of what's happening with, with the stress discourse. Um, but there's a long history behind it and how we got to where we are with that. Uh, and that's what I trace out in, uh, chapter three in the the chapter called the mantra of stress. And the, the unspoken assumption is, um, you hear a trope among the mindfulness people that, um, our problem is that we've inherited this uh outdated uh hardwired uh biology uh because uh back in the day of uh, uh when we were a uh, hunter hunter and gatherers and cavemen uh you know we uh we had to fight or flee if we were uh, hunting so if we came across uh, a saber-toothed tiger we had to you know, run real quick and and go to our cave and and uh, chill out until our adrenaline uh, rush. Uh. But the problem is that we're inhabiting uh, the 21st century lifestyle, so we don't have that luxury. So the story goes: we accumulate stress, we become stressed out, which is a term that really didn't come into uh, cultural parlance until the 1980s. But the unspoken assumption is that if we had only evolved further biologically. Uh, in other words, if we didn't inher- inherit this outmoded fight-flight system, we wouldn't have any stress or conflicts. Huh? So it's you know it basically is kind of sending the message that uh, you know it's us that have this flawed biology, and so we have to compensate for it. It's not that the modern capitalist economy is problematic; uh, we are the problem. And what that does is it naturalizes stress. It uh, uh, it takes our capitalist system as a given, which we much, must adapt to, and uh, that's problematic uh, because it, it, it crowds out other explanatory narratives that could uh, uh, re stress as a, a political issue, which it is. And so by adopting um, sort of this uh, dominant discourse of stress, then you're also ideologically uh, aligning yourself with uh, basically the, the neoliberal agenda. And, you, you, you know, you hear this in terms of the fear-based rhetoric that stress is an epidemic, it's omnipresent, you know, so it's up to us to to mindful up uh, as seen as completely an individual level problem. Um, and I think that's where uh, much of the self-help uh, literature uh, situates, uh, kind of adopts this kind of idea. It's not just mindfulness, there's, there's many other self-help techniques that um, fall into the same camp here. The culture of self-improvement, self-optimization, they all sort of uh, basically have some cure on sale, but the cure is always uh, put back on the individual to to adapt.
0: Before we go any further, I'd like to stop for a moment and talk about the history of the mindfulness movement. What are its origins and where did it come from? Right, well, that's a complex uh,
1: question. There are many, many strands, many threads, uh, very intertwined. But what I tried to do is, is to trace the emergence of MBSR, uh, mindfulness-based stress reduction, which uh, John Kabat-Zinn started in 1979 when he was uh, at the University of Massachusetts Medical Center. That actually started out as the Stress Reduction and Relaxation Program. That's what it was first called. And um, it was located in a university medical center. Um, And this was basically uh, the outcome of a vision that he had when he was on a Vipassana retreat, an insight meditation uh, society retreat in Bari. Uh, He had a vision that uh, he could adapt and and, uh, uh, modify these uh, uh, meditative techniques, mindfulness techniques, uh, to be used to treat uh, people with chronic pain. Uh, other types of psychosomatic symptoms. So that was the beginning of it, but um, it really has a much more uh, interesting history because he sort of built upon some of the work that was being done by uh, Herbert Benson. And Herbert Benson was a Harvard medical doctor who was uh, at Harvard studying at the time, he was into biofeedback, but um, Uh, some of the, uh, the adherents from transcendental meditation, TM approached him and, and he began to, uh, do research on TM and, uh, like kabat he, uh, basically, uh, kind of universalized, uh, the, uh, capacity of the human body. Uh, and that allowed him to, uh, also, um, claim there was no, no, uh, connections to uh, Hinduism, uh, where TM came from, um. That was sort of the beginning, but it goes further back than that, too, because the form of mindfulness uh, that we see in, in in our culture right now really uh, can also be traced quite far back to uh, what Richard King calls the mindfulness-only school, uh, and that was imported from the uh, Burmese and the Thai uh, revival movements uh, during the British Empire with uh, uh, the British Empire and Christian missionaries were uh, threatening the uh, the existence of Buddhism in in these countries during the occupation. So people like uh, Ledi uh, Sayada, Mahasi Sayada in Burma, they led a large lay movement, which opened up meditation to lay people. Uh, but by modernizing it, you know, this is a Buddhist modernism. I'm sure you've had other guests that have gone into this in more depth, but... Uh, basically, the the notion was that uh, we can strip away what we're seen as superstitious Asian cultural uh, baggage, uh, and and reframe mindfulness as a science of mind that uh, uh, would be completely compatible to Western sensibilities. So it's interesting that uh, that this uh, this revival movement though was quite political. It was a it was a cultural defense against uh, the British. But it had this uh, uh, side effect of of promoting mindfulness and making it accessible to lay people. So when people like Jack Kornfield and uh, Sharon Salzberg and Joseph Goldstein were uh, in Asia and Southeast Asia, they were learning this modernized uh, uh, form of of Vipassana or insight meditation. And so that's sort of the strand uh, that um, led us to where we are today with clinical and therapeutic forms of mindfulness. So... Um, And without the fertile soil of Buddhist modernism, uh, this probably would have never taken root in the way it did, Um, uh, because it offered itself up as um, something that was very um, non-religious, non-sectarian, and uh, universal, uh, a science of mind, something that uh, eventually would be uh, uh, taken up by uh, the scientific community to uh, actually legitimize it even further. And that's really when uh, mindfulness, uh, especially when the scientific studies uh, started to uh, be conducted uh, and they kind of exponentially grew, that lended a Mm -hmm. tremendous amount of legitimacy to to, uh, mindfulness in Western culture.
0: And just to to follow up on that, um, you know, Buddhism has always been adapted to each new culture that it's spread to. So what's wrong with rebranding and repackaging mindfulness for a new audience like it's being done in the West? Right. That is uh, absolutely a,
1: a great question. And, um, that's something you hear quite a bit that, um, Buddhism has always changed as it, as it moved from one culture to the next so and and it's true uh, Buddhism as it moved from India to China to Southeast Asia it uh, cross fertilized it uh, it adapted to uh, other religions such as in China it, it, it mixed in with Taoism and Confucianism and so forth but that was over a very long period of time um, like in China it was like a six hundred year process and there were translators uh translating uh, Sanskrit into Chinese and there was a you know very long process in-depth process of cultural and literary translation in pre-modern times but I think what um, I think what we're seeing here is something very different um and Linda Heumann, a friend of mine uh, actually wrote about this I think um but we're we're in a different epoch in terms of all these different background assumptions and social imaginaries and Western capitalist uh, postmodern culture, if you want to call it that. Very different than pre-modern China or or, uh, pre-modern Korea. Um, And um, so as as Buddhism has come to the modern capitalist West, it's very different. It's entered a secular age. uh, And the host cultures, uh, I like to call them host cultures, uh, have been primarily uh, medicine and psychology. Uh, where Buddhism has uh, sort of grafted itself into as the dominant uh, discourses have been then shaped and defined by those two dominant uh, disciplines, psychology and medicine. That sort of shapes uh, these practices in ways, um, which uh, is compatible with uh, our uh, popular uh, culture. Uh, But I think there's other things happening that we may not be aware of in terms of what we may be downplaying, what we may be missing in terms of other ways of knowing, other modes of consciousness that don't necessarily conform to our Western beliefs and rationality. And so there's a, a strong commitment, implicit, I think, uh, to scientific materialism in uh, the mindfulness uh, uh, communities. That... um may be compatible with modernism. Uh, True, it may. And be also very compatible with our materialist worldview. But um, I think there's some transformative aspects of the tradition that, uh, because of of the modernization, have been uh, sort of set aside. Um, And you see that more uh, I think, with the Theravada, Vipassana, modern Vipassana, neo-Vipassana, insight meditation uh, strands than you do in Tibetan Buddhism. Tibetan Buddhism, although it's now uh, also moving into modernizing and, and so forth, a lot in, in Tibetan Buddhism that it would be very difficult to have dialogues with um, in terms of some of the assumptions that that they have within their traditions and some of their um, ways of knowing which are, are not uh, conforming to Western presuppositions and so forth. That's a long-winded answer to that question.
0: <laughs> no worries. <laughs> Thanks for that. Um, yeah, my, my next question is, you know, we've all seen footage uh, from conferences where many of the leaders in the mindfulness movement are on stage and in a dialogue with, uh, you know, large Buddhist figures such as His Holiness the Dalai Lama and Thich Nhat Hanh and Matthieu Ricard. But, uh, so can't we say that Buddhism and the mindfulness movement are two sides of the same coin? One religious, one secular, with the thing that they have in common being the dharma? Uh, what do you mean by
1: the dharma? Because that's a, a term that's contested. It's still a religious term. If you use the word dharma, you're, you're using a religious term. Um, I, you know, I, I think this is goes to the rhetorical strategies which have focused on, uh, the idea that we as Westerners, um, we know better because we're modern so that we can extract what is considered the essence of the Dharma. And this is a universalizing, uh, uh, rhetorical strategy of universalization, which, um, has, uh, problems in terms of, uh, the uh, assumptions that, that are being made when you when you make that move. Um, so that requires a lot of decontextualization, which assumes then that mindfulness is a standalone technique. Number one, it assumes it has a context, context-free essence. Number two, and that if we can extract that essence, then we can study it as if it is uh, something in a Petri dish. That is disconnected and disembedded from its context, from its from the life worlds in which we say mindfulness works. Works for whom and for what purpose and for what interest? Uh, this these are questions which um, are often uh, downplayed in the mindfulness communities because uh, there's the belief that the individual is the sole nexus of meaning uh, and. So these are very unex- these are not universal. Uh, these assumptions are anything but universal. It's sort of also, I think, we are uh, vulnerable to, as North Americans, and as Americans, um, one of the most highly individualistic societies in the world. We have a glaring blind spot in terms of understanding how the role of culture and how it actually shapes our sense of self and i think this kind of universalizing tendency to say that uh we have access to the universal dharma in a way sort of opens up these practices to uh all these f- market forces all the uh forces of individualism and uh, but it's a it's a narrative i think that somehow tries to present mindfulness as standing outside of history or standing outside of our social and historical context, which uh, is impossible. and um, But this is a key discursive uh, element of, of, of when, you, when you privatize mindfulness um, and you turn it into a self-help uh, uh, technique. Uh, it, it then kind of uh, is seen as a standalone technique. Uh, uh, Barry Magid, who wrote the book What's Wrong with Mindfulness and What's Not I really like his term. He calls it a "for gain" approach to mindfulness. Uh, so we've um, we've kind of recontextualized mindfulness uh, within the domain of a, a utilitarian, pragmatic, uh, goal-driven uh, sort of uh, Western sensibilities. And that uh, uh, you know that's fine, but it you know I think what that does is it it. Uh, it uh, truncates uh, other uh, approaches to mindfulness or other ways of, uh, uh, of, of using mindfulness that are not necessarily uh, focused on, um, uh, put it in service of the ego, uh, in other words. So I think that's one of the trade offs and one of the things that are, that's being lost in, in the modernization of mindfulness.
0: So you say that the mindfulness movement is subtly propagating a sort of social amnesia. And I thought that was a really interesting term. Um, And I believe what you mean by that is it's um, by propagating exclusive awareness on present moment experience. Um, It prevents individuals from reflecting on the causes of and solutions for society's socioeconomic problems. But many people practice mindfulness in order to live a happier, more peaceful life you know not everyone is interested in becoming a warrior for social and economic change so can you blame them for that no
1: i wouldn't blame them but i think we need to become more mindful uh, of of the dominant narrative which um basically um if you say that i'm stressed so therefore i'll turn to an app or uh meditate or or whatever uh even take a bubble bath uh These can make you feel better, uh, there's no doubt. Uh, And I'm not suggesting that we shouldn't take care of ourselves. Uh, Self-care can be a radical uh, political act. But these are very superficial remedies uh, to these deep-rooted structural problems which um, are causing uh, people to turn to mindfulness in the first place. So uh, I'm really more concerned about how mindfulness can be and has been uh, deployed uh, to help people uh, basically uh, tolerate and survive within exploitive systems, rather than helping them to uh, collectively come together in a mindful way uh, through mindfulness programs, which uh, could help them to uh, exert their collective voice to challenge these structures of oppression or uh, injustices. Uh, now, uh, that won't be for everyone. Uh, that's for sure. Uh, but if we're really going to claim that, uh, this is a revolution, a mindfulness revolution, then we do need to move in that direction more towards a uh, collective, uh, forms of mindfulness.
0: I think one of the, the greatest selling points of the mindfulness movements, uh, is the fact that it is very scientifically based, and that it does have a large body of research behind it, uh, and I think a lot of people uh, really use this to to convince others that it's uh, it's an effective method to treat whatever element they're uh, they're help, hoping to get help with. But is it actually as uh, as well grounded in science as we think it is? Well, yes and no. Um, the
1: The literature now that's coming out that's uh, much more critical of, of, of mindfulness studies. Uh, Meta, There are many um, meta-analytic studies that have come out over the last three to five years which have called into question uh, some of the, the claims uh, of significance. And, uh, of course, the big one was the JAMA study, the Journal uh, of the American uh, Medical Association that uh, was done at Johns Hopkins. That was the big one that, in 2014, uh, basically, they uh, looked at over 18,000 studies, but only 47 of them met their uh, criteria for admission in their meta-analytic uh, statistical study. Uh, and once you narrowed it down to those 47, then um, the significance looked m- a lot more modest than, than uh, what was thought. Um, and there have been other studies uh, co- commissioned by uh, the NIH, National Institute of Health as well, uh, and, and one in particular that came out recently uh, was co-authored uh, by 15 uh, contemplative scientists uh, called Mind the Hype. Uh, and these are people who have been um, some of the most prominent researchers uh, in the mindfulness scientific mindfulness community, uh, coming out uh, on their own in, in a very thorough article, actually, that uh, listed kind of a litany of, of methodological problems with these studies. But not just that, uh, because as the title suggests, Mind the Hype, that uh, the hype, uh, especially as it's communicated in the popular media, has outpaced the, the actual evidence. And, and so they, they uh, own up to that uh, in this particular article, which is good. But I, I think you see other issues too. For example, one of the key ones that is often talked about is experimenter uh, allegiance and experimental allegiance is where a uh, person running the uh, the active control group, the active uh, uh, experimental group, is also uh, someone who is uh, uh, either an advocate or, of mindfulness, or, or they're the key uh, the key author of the article. And when you factor that out, uh, the significance goes down considerably when you take out uh, the experimenter uh, allegiance effect. But you're right. Uh, branding mindfulness uh, with science has uh, been a, a tremendous boost to its popularity, and you see, uh, actually, this is something I wrote about earlier in, a, in another essay. It was called the mindfulness's truthiness problem. So it sounds very sciency uh, in many ways. Uh, mindfulness feels very sciency. But uh, if you disentangle some of the research, you'll see that uh, uh, the, the results are modest. Uh, they're not as, uh, as uh, uh, overblown as, as people have uh, communicated them. And I think that's partly due to uh, science communication itself. I find it fascinating that uh, some, some very prominent contemplative uh, scientists have uh, made these really exaggerated claims in popular articles such as the Harvard Business Review, for example. But then um, they're very m- much more circumspect in, in academic uh, writings. There's a lot of hedging and a, there's a lot of qualifications. And, um, but there's quite a gap between the public, the public uh, reporting of science and the actual uh, backstage uh, uh, material in, in academic journals. There's quite a gap between those two. On the other hand, um, you can also see a tremendous amount of funding that has increased uh, in mindfulness through uh, federal agencies and so forth. And at one time, I mentioned this, that uh, uh, transcendental meditation was sort of the golden child of, uh, of, uh, of scientific study. And uh, I think NIH uh, actually... Uh, funded over $23 million in research funds to study TM, but that fell out of favor around 2003. And then uh, mindfulness took up the slack, and there's like over $100 million that have been uh, of of funded research studies from the National Institute of Health. So there you go. Uh, I think that um, uh, it's it's being uh, much more... uh, closely scrutinized than it has before by uh, people doing Mm -hmm. these uh, meta-analytic studies.
0: Um, In your book, you primarily take a look at the mindfulness movement in the American context, Um, not exclusively though. And- I have double nationality with the Netherlands and the U.S., and, and I currently live in Brussels, Belgium. And I can tell you that the mindfulness movement is in full swing here in Europe. There's, you know, all these mindfulness consultancies that have popped up in in the the past decade or so that uh, teach mindfulness programs to other companies' employees. And a number of my own acquaintances and professional contacts have also participated in these mindfulness programs uh, that their company sponsored. Um, and generally, I, I think they react pretty positively to the experience. So um, where's the harm if a company wants to offer a mindfulness program to its employees as an extra benefit?
1: Well, I think the harm uh, comes from placing the burden on the individual uh, to uh, be fully responsible uh, for their own well-being in the corporate workplace, uh, because that means that uh, the corporation or the company, whatever it, wherever it may be occurring, can continue to do what, it do what it does. It could continue to require individuals to work 80-hour weeks. Uh, it could continue to um, basically exploit people in terms of uh, not offering them adequate uh, benefits, time off, sick days, uh, or the fast pace of work that their people are being subjected to, unrealistic workloads. There's no harm, I mean, and this is what uh, Kevin Healy, a friend of mine, talks about, uh, that corporations, especially uh, you could say uh, corporations such as uh, Google and um, fairly large corporations, you don't see mindfulness programs being offered uh, at McDonald's and people working at uh, at low wages uh, or at Amazon warehouses. But in in these larger corporations, uh, mindfulness programs uh, provide what Kevin Healy calls an integrity bubbles. And what he means by that, that uh, small groups of employees within the corporations will get some um, palliative uh, uh, benefits from mindfulness. In other words, they can um, de-stress, cope a little bit better with the demands of the workplace uh, but continue to, to ignore um, and downplay the externalities that are being uh, uh, exported—the the pollution, the digital pollution that's being exported by these companies. So it's kind of ironic that, for take Google for example, which has uh, been a subject of a lot of privacy violations and ethical issues that terms of privacy and many other uh quite quite egregious violations um they can continue to uh google engineers can continue to through mindfulness be better focused better concentrated to uh keep producing uh these technologies of distraction and addiction so it, yeah it, it, there's no harm but there is a harm uh, from a, from a larger socio-political perspective because what that what we're doing is we're simply uh, reproducing capitalist relations. Uh, we're actually using mindfulness uh, as a way to maintain uh, existing power structures, existing uh, corporate uh, policies, and and um, so forth. So uh, there's actually no challenge at all uh, made whatsoever uh, in in these programs. Um, they're very very conservative. They're very uh, almost colluding, uh, with, uh, the interest of, of capital in many ways. And it downplays, uh, the fact that, uh, these workplace stressors that people are experiencing are not just due to people's lack of mindfulness or the, their inability to concentrate or that they're distracted. Uh, th- these workplace stressors are structural. Um, and this has been well-documented by, uh, people like Jeff, uh, Jeffrey, Professor Jeff Pfeffer at the Stanford Graduate Business School did a study uh, on workplace stressors, found that uh, for the large part, there are things like uh, lack of health insurance, uh, uh, unrealistic workloads, uh, bad bosses, um, uh, long work hours, uh, unrealistic uh, time demands, all kinds of things like this, which, um, of course, aren't addressed by corporate mindfulness programs. So, in a way… what that does is it, it takes the ball off the corporation and puts it into the individual to, to cope. And that to me is, uh, nothing new. Uh, we've seen that going all the way back to the 1930s and 1940s, uh, with the human relations movement, uh, Harvard, uh, psychiatrist, uh, uh, Elton Mayo, uh, was working with Western electric plant on the West side of Chicago. And, um, One of the interesting experiments that they did is they interviewed uh, almost all the employees at this particular manufacturing plant uh, and asked them, you know, what's bothering you? How do you feel? Uh, And employees felt that things, they felt better as a result of being listened to, but nothing in the workplace whatsoever uh, changed economically or materially. Um, And and so you see a long history of... uh, in, in, in management that uh, we've always tried to, to uh, change uh, the subjectivity of the worker uh, to align the employee and the worker uh, to the interest of organizational goals. And so back in, in Elton Mayo's time, uh, uh, many of the workers in these plants were women, and uh, he characterized them as being hysterical. Uh, that they were uh, suffering from uh, hysteria and um, what he called mental reverie, like daydreaming. And now we would call that mind-wandering. So uh, when I saw these parallels, uh, I was just stunned because it, it, to me, it just looks like the postmodern, um, post-modern version of the human relations movement. And, and, and so it was kind of a deja vu to uh, come across the history and tie these two together.
0: Even the most dedicated proponents of of the mindfulness movement would admit that mindfulness has become a little trendy. Um, You see the term mindfulness being used as a buzzword in advertising from anything from toothpaste to cars. And just the other day, I went to a a cafe for lunch here in the, the European quarter in Brussels. And the daily special was something called a mindful chicken sandwich. I have no idea what qualified it as mindful. Um, there's kind of a, a vaguely pseudo Asian pineapple sauce that it was served with. I guess maybe that's a mindful connection. But <laughs> anyway, the, the point is basically that, you know, mindfulness sells and, and people are aware of that. Um, and of course, many companies have jumped on that opportunity to make a profit, um, offering anything from chicken sandwiches to in company mindfulness programs and, and even mindfulness apps. Maybe some of these companies are just in it for the money, but at the end of the day, if they're filling a gap in the market and their product is helping their clients learn mindfulness and and live a happier life, um, is there anything wrong with that?
1: Well, it depends on where you stand. I stand in a place um, that may sound quite radical for someone who's a professor of management, but we have to take these corporations to account. in terms of what they're not only doing uh, to employees. I mean, if you look at some of the latest surveys that have been released, um, the amount of stress that people feel right now is incredible. Uh, and to only uh, offer uh, these individualistic solutions and to uh, have these bad diagnoses saying that uh, the, the reason is because you're just not concentrating enough, you're not uh, you don't really know how to focus. Uh, you don't know how to self-regulate. Uh, to me, uh, to me, that's politically. Uh, it's a form of political uh, spiritual bypassing. Yeah, you know, it's a form of political bypassing. Um, and uh, it, you know, we are at the juncture now in our uh, culture where uh, letting corporations run amok uh, is uh, something that's taking us over the precipice. Um, so I take a strong political stand in the book and I'm not ashamed of that in terms of saying that let's, let's stop being accomplices, uh, to the elites in these corporations. Let's stop being corporate enablers. And that's to me, I know it's quite harsh, but I think a lot of corporate mindfulness trainers are corporate enablers. They take their money from their corporate sponsors. They're not going to bite the hand that feeds them. In in that respect, okay, uh, uh, you know, you can keep making money, that's fine. I I, I guess that's why uh, my book has uh, uh, ruffled a few feathers in terms of um, calling into question some of uh, of, uh, these programs where a lot of people's livelihoods are at stake in terms of offering these programs and corporations. So, And there's a, a tremendous amount of money involved. Uh, the mindfulness industry is now estimated to be 1.1 billion dollars. So, if that's what mindfulness is—if it's just a commodity and it's just a um, temporary, quick fix, uh, apply a band aid and then get back into the war zone technique—I um, think we, I think we got a problem.
0: And now, speaking of people at the top, uh, in the book, you, you definitely take many of the elites in the mindfulness movement to task, uh, particularly those in the Davos crowd and the big tech companies. But, you know, every, every movement has its elite figures. So what do you see as especially problematic about those in the mindfulness movement?
1: Well, um, I think it's it just goes to the fact that uh, from the beginning, this, this movement was an elite movement uh, led by um, upper middle class white males but in particular who have the cultural capital to, to go to Davos, um, to rub shoulders with uh, the masters of the universe. Um, you know, it's, it's sort of this, uh, I think, uh, magical thinking in a way that uh, that if we just uh, train uh, these elites, uh, that there'll be a trickle-down effect. Uh, you know, the mindful leader uh, sort of approach will we'll train these uh, CEOs and so forth. And then we can expect there'll be this uh, transformation. Uh, They'll then become uh, sort of corporate saviors uh, and uh, turn the corner, uh, kind of turn the corporation into the most humanistic, ecologically responsible company in the world. Um, These are the claims uh, that we hear a lot, the Trojan horse, uh, uh, the myth of the Trojan horse, that if we just uh, sprinkle a few seeds of mindfulness into corporations that over time we will see this social and political transformation. So at one time, Monsanto was the poster child for mindfulness. It was one of the first companies that got on board, and it was the CEO and the senior managers uh, that's that uh, were uh, trained. Uh, a few scientists some anecdotal uh, stories that well, a couple scientists uh, said you know maybe what we're doing is wrong and but that was the extent of it um, we still have uh, roundup with us uh, causing cancer uh, we have Bill George who was the president of Medtronics uh, company uh, then uh, I guess he uh, Secured a position at the Harvard Business School as an executive in residence. He's been one of the most vocal people for spreading mindful leadership. And I raised this uh, in the book about uh, my friend David Loy, who wrote ch- uh, Bill George an open letter about five or six years ago because Bill George sits on the, uh, on the boards of Goldman Sachs and ExxonMobil and Novartis, which uh, I, I need not say any more about their uh, track records in, in, in terms of corporate social responsibility. Uh, and he wrote an open letter asking him, well, how does your mindfulness practice actually influence your decision making and how you um, interact with your board members? And do you, has your uh, mindfulness practice uh, infiltrated to the, asking these uh, hard ethical questions? Um, and he never responded to David Loy's letter. Um, and, and so I think we have to call these people out in some ways for uh, almost a, their hypocrisy. And so I am uh, definitely, um, I, I do take a, a political stand that uh, I don't think that we should be uh, enabling the status quo of these companies, that, that we should, if we're going to do something, let's do something that really calls into question um, these toxic uh, policies and practices that are causing the amount of stress that people are experiencing. And uh, to say that it's going to trickle down is, uh, to me, uh, an empty promise.
0: With this concept of trickle down mindfulness, there's kind of this understanding or this assumption that within mindfulness is embedded an ethical system that will automatically be fulfilled if people were only more mindful. That seems a little bit like wishful thinking to me, or a little bit like uh, yeah, I
1: think that's very really disputed. Um, I don't know. There's some recent studies that are actually uh, questioning that 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 claim that um, mindfulness in and of itself leads to pro social behaviors or it leads to compassion. Uh, there's there's numerous studies now that are uh, saying that it can even blunt your moral decision making. Someone I just saw that on Facebook, uh, some some article that came out. But yeah, I mean, the corporate context is very different than the monastic context, uh, and and I, I don't think that we appreciate that. Uh, that recontextualization is uh, something that uh, involves all sorts of uh, social forces, which uh, we presume are benevolent. Um, we presume that they're they're leading to the social good, and but I think that's uh, some assumptions that need to be questioned, interrogated, uh, in terms of also that meditation or mindfulness meditation. In many ways, can also be a form of spiritual bypassing, uh, not just on, a, on an individual level, but also on a political and structural level, and particularly when we see it uh, being deployed in a corporation. Um, and uh, so I, I think this should give us pause given just how market-friendly uh, mindfulness practices have become. I think that should give us pause in, in some ways to take a step back and ask, us, uh, ask ourselves, so what's really going on? I, 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 I actually see some parallels to uh, how pharmaceuticals, uh, have, uh, pharmaceuticals have become so uh, prevalent. Uh, and as a form of spiritual bypassing, mindfulness can be used to uh, alleviate our pain or to try to dull the pain that we have or avoid it. And you know, if we feel a little bit better, uh, that's ten percent happier. You know if we feel ten percent happier, that's good enough. Uh, and I, I mention this later in the book that um, I think suffering, which is the first noble truth in in the Buddhist path and four noble truths, um, that suffering is often telling us that something is wrong. And, and that there are signals that we could pay attention to. We could be mindful of our suffering and in ways that uh, actually don't privatize it as well. And, and so um, we're in such a complicated world now where um, the forces of social suffering, and I, I use the term social suffering because it's I'm trying to say that, look, it's not just uh, something that's privatized within individuals anymore. It's entangled. We have the complex orders of suffering that are entangled and hard to identify because uh, in a neoliberal order of society, um, we have these other levels of suffering. So first-level suffering is basically what we have been familiar with right? Uh, at the individual level, even in Buddhism. uh, Buddhism has been a path of individual salvation. That we take full responsibility uh, for our own delusion and and uh, uh, mental poisons and try to, to uh, uh, liberate ourselves at an individual level. That's been pretty much the history of of Western uh, of Asian and Western Buddhism, and um, I think we're at a point now where that that approach uh, needs to be rewritten uh, in terms of uh, like with the Venerable be. Bhikkhu has been uh, talking quite a bit about this, is that we need kind of a global mindfulness or a civic mindfulness, which clearly comprehends, clear comprehension, which is a, a, one of the key factors of, of mindfulness, uh, not just our individual mind streams, uh, the mental toxins and, and clashes within our individual mind streams, but also the sociopolitical uh, sources of suffering, which are entangled with our personal suffering. And, and that's, that's kind of a whole new uh paradigm i think that we have to move away from seeing mindfulness strictly as a therapeutic uh clinical uh uh, modality although that's part of it that's definitely part of it but also conjoin that with a more collective or civic form of mindfulness which can bring to bear our uh, wisdom and compassion at a more social and political level especially now that we're uh facing up to uh impending uh, ecological uh, crisis that we're in. Um, this is really something, I think, by turning critique back outwards uh, rather than inwards. Rather than an inward turn, we also need an outward turn. And, and if you actually look at mindfulness from a canonical perspective, it, it also talked about mindfulness uh, uh, having fo- uh, external focus. It's not just internal. And so I think that by uh, seeing how the dominant discourse of stress, which has been privatized, that we've seen it as a strictly personal problem, uh, the more we can kind of shift out of that discourse, um, I think the better off we'll be uh, in terms of liberating mindfulness so they become a force for social and political change, which doesn't throw the baby out with the bathwater per se. It's still... Uh, uh, we still need to take care of ourselves. Uh, self-care is very important, but it's self-care uh, in, in community with others. And I think that one of the problems of Western Buddhism, and I've had this discussion with a few people recently, is there's um, kind of a privileging of silence in, in many uh, domains, uh, whether it's on retreat and so forth. Of course, there's a place for that. There's definitely a place for that, but I think that uh, there's there's something lacking, uh, I think now, uh, in Buddhist communities, and, and and that lack has to do with um, finding ways to collectively come together more in dialogue, to address uh, these more systemic and structural forces of injustice and exploitation. And so, a lot of people think that, well, you know, Buddhism shouldn't be political, right? But I think there is a role uh, for the Dharmic, the Dharmic citizen, uh, and that's kind of uh, developing these civic virtues. So we think about virtues from an, uh, let's say, from a, a Aristotelian perspective of uh, virtue ethics. But there's the idea, um, at least the Greeks had this idea, that we are always political. We we exist within a polis. We exist within the public space. And this is what neoliberalism has tried to destroy, is uh, the domain of public spaces, the domain of democratic dialogue. And uh, they had a word for people who weren't in the polis, or people who uh, basically were apathetic. And uh, actually, the the the... The root word uh, the the root of idiot uh, idios was came from the Greek someone who was sort of checked out of society and not taking care of uh, of the public domain um, and so when mindfulness is reduced to a self-help technique a do-it-yourself standalone self-help technique then we have, um, we have, we're sort of putting aside other potentialities of mindfulness as a more civic, as a more communal, as a more um, transformative technique that requires uh, a lot more solidarity. And the solidarity can come by uh, suffering with others, which is actually one of the meanings of compassion. So I think that's a very different sort of view of mindfulness, different vision.
0: And I'd like to, uh, to turn to one of the specific contexts in which mindfulness has been applied. Um, and you speak about this in your book a little bit, um, and that's education. Uh, I know particularly in the US, there's, there's been a wide range of mindfulness initiatives uh, introduced in schools, anything from weekly lessons by an external teacher, or uh, teachers incorporating mindfulness in their individual classrooms, or even entire schools adopting mindfulness practices. And so far from what I hear the anecdotal evidence seems positive. So does mindfulness have a place in our schools?
1: Yeah it's it's quite popular um, there's no doubt about it. I think the issue that I take uh, in the book with mindfulness in, in schools again is um, that most programs uh, most programs that you see, they don't really uh, take into account any kind of uh, critical inquiry into the social and economic context that are often uh, have a lot to do with the behavioral problems that, um, in disadvantaged uh, neighborhoods and schools, poor academic performance, so on. Um, and so I, I take issue that there's almost a glaring absence of um, a liberating critical pedagogy that could be uh, integrated with uh, uh, mindfulness and school programs it might kind of be a teachable moment where people could be, uh, engaged you know, actively engaged in, 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 um, learning, uh, critically uh, uh, about their, the context that they're in. And so, um, what you see primarily then is, um, mindfulness programs, um, which, um, are used, uh, in such a way to help, uh, Children calm down to manage, self-regulate uh, their anger. And, but there's no real questioning of why uh, these people, why uh, children are feeling the way they're feeling in these, in these contexts. So that's part of the problem that I, I, I see um, in, in, these, in these programs. Um, the, the other thing is that there, there is absolutely a paucity of research on mindfulness in, in, uh, for, for children, talk about uh, the mindfulness uh, scientific uh, literature being embryonic. It's even more embryonic when it comes to children, and I, I think that's uh, important because um, a lot of mindfulness school programs are taught in uh, disadvantaged neighborhoods. Uh, s- children could be uh, have a history of trauma. And uh, I don't think that uh, mindful school teachers uh, are, are trained uh, competently to deal with trauma, although that's starting to change. Uh, I had um, I had several people. There is a mindful uh, school program in Richmond, California. Uh, privately, email me uh, letters, and these were letters uh, from the mindfulness teachers themselves. In other words, th- there was there was one mindfulness teacher in particular. Who was very experienced, had done a lot of training, and uh, she was uh, basically up in arms about how this particular uh, uh, service provider, this particular mindful school program, was hiring uh, teachers and giving them like a four-hour training and then throwing them into the classroom. And um, they were actually uh, going to the school board and making it a public issue. So I think we have some issues there around do we really know what we're doing uh, when we're operating with children um, in these uh in these uh settings? And you know, the other contested issue is something that uh has been coming up for a number of years, not just with mindfulness, but with yoga. And um one of my colleagues, of course, Candy uh Gunther Brown, uh, just came out with a book called uh, debating mindfulness in yoga in public schools, she's much more of an expert than I am on on, on these legal issues. But there have been some legal challenges uh, to mindful school programs, uh, and particularly the one, uh, I think it was in Massachusetts, was the Calmer Choice program, uh, actually was uh, uh, a target Uh by the National Center for Law and Policy, which represents uh, evangelical Christians, of course, in litigation, um, but um, you know that's a whole other area. I think that uh, is uh, quite contested. There are, uh, if you look at some of the popular mindfulness programs in schools, uh, they they are using artifacts that look very Asian, uh, you know, Tibetan bells and so forth, and. Of course, you could argue whether that's secular or religious, that's a kind of the binary, which is uh, quite permeable depending on where you stand and who you talk to. But I think it is uh, uh, an area that my colleague David Forbes has spent most of his uh, 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 last 10 to 15 years trying to develop uh, a different approach to mindfulness in schools, one that is much more critical uh, and what, one which is much more integrative. Uh, so it integrates critical pedagogies with mindfulness uh, uh, therapeutic uh, uh, techniques. I have heard good news uh, and good uh, reports about uh, what's going on in the New York City schools, that they are one of the few programs that have consciously tried to integrate critical, uh, critical pe- pedagogies with uh, uh, mindfulness uh, uh, programs. So I, I think we're starting to see some movement in that direction.
0: And I think the, the ethics behind introducing mindfulness programs to schools is made only that much more complicated by the fact that, uh, you know, certain actors within the mindfulness movement like to kind of have it both ways. They, they like to present a secular front, but, you know, often behind closed doors or with their own audiences, they're often using uh, rather, you know, Buddhist jargon or speaking of, of the Dharma or overtly religious uh, concepts. Um, now, certainly, I, I don't think this is the case with, with all of the organizations who uh, are introducing programs into schools. But I think if there's um, a lack of clarity around you know the origins, and this is often covered up, then you're certainly going to raise questions in parents' heads about what their children are actually engaging in and if they actually want them to be engaging in these practices right i mean it,
1: it's not rocket science anyone can google the word mindfulness and eventually see that it, it has a history tied to buddhist traditions um so that's uh, kind of out in plain day plain daylight i think and and so yeah you you do see uh, some parents uh saying well you know uh I, i'm not so sure about this um and rightly so i think um uh but this is uh, what uh, I refer to as as camouflage. Uh, the, the idea that uh, uh, you, you turn on uh, the, or the Buddhist on and off position of branding. Uh, uh, you switch uh, the Buddhist branding on and off depending on on who you're talking to, what audience you're, what constituent, what constituency you're 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 talking to. And so if you're if you are talking to school administrators or you are talking to federal, uh, funding agencies, you're definitely going to turn the Buddhist switch off completely. But if you're, um, at a conference such as wisdom 2.0 or the mind and life Institute, or you're, uh, you know, talking to people who you know are kind of sympathetic, uh, then you turn the Buddhist switch on, um, and say, a things that how you're teaching the Dharma, um, uh, Uh, you're teaching the Dharma, but the people that we're teaching teaching it to don't know that we're teaching the Dharma. And I've I've actually heard people say this um, quite explicitly. Uh, So I think that raises some ethical issues. Um, If you really think that you're uh, offering stealth Buddhism or some sort of camouflaged form of Buddhism, I, I think that's problematic.
0: Yeah, when, an, another area that I think is uh, problematic that you introduce in your book, um, you know, I've been active with mindfulness <clears throat> within both Buddhist and academic context for a number of years now. And I think listeners who follow me as a host on the, the New Books Network probably won't be too surprised by that. I think they could probably see a, a recurring theme in the authors and books that I've uh, invited to be on the podcast. Uh, but, you know, so over the years, I could tell that mindfulness was obviously becoming increasingly mainstream in society. Um, but I never really stepped out on my own areas of interest to look at what was happening in in the broader society. So one of the chapters in your book that came as a huge surprise to me was chapter 12 entitled Mindful Warriors, in which you explain how mindfulness techniques are being adapted for uh, military training in the U.S. Now, maybe there is some way that this might be a benefit to soldiers who are dealing with, you know, just huge levels of stress on the field or, or those who are suffering from PTSD back home. But this one chapter alone really jumped out at me as a warning about the potential of mindfulness to be used in truly nefarious and unethical ways. Um, and I think, you know, obviously those familiar with Buddhist history might not be so shocked, um, as there are a number of historical contemporary examples of where the, the, the Dharma has been weaponized, such as in uh, World War II Japan and so forth, and all was for a specifically uh, militaristic purpose. But I think um, this one chapter and this one context really points to the fact that mindfulness movement has truly reached every corner of society, and there's no real oversight as to how it's being used. Um, would you like to comment a little on this point? Right. When I first stumbled upon
1: uh, how mindfulness was being used in the military, I I was kind of shocked. And this is uh, a few years back when I first um, when it first caught my attention. And I thought this is really strange because um, the advocates, many of the advocates who are um, you know somewhat involved in the U.S military uh, initiative of mindfulness, say that they're teaching Dharma. and um, I'm going, well, if you're teaching the Dharma, doesn't that mean uh, that we uh, should have compassion even towards our enemies? Do we, do we really in- engage in violence if we're teaching the Dharma? So that, that made me really kind of think through just how kind of distorted uh, and perverted these practices can become. And, and, and again, that's what happens when you you strip them uh, completely, decontextualize them, instrumentalize them, uh, turn it into basically a concentration technique that is, uh, uh, you know, I, I really don't even think what they're teaching uh, uh, military uh, infantrymen um uh, I don't really even think they're teaching them mindfulness. They're teaching them some form of attention enhancement training. But nevertheless, um, I took issue with how uh, mindfulness these mindfulness programs were being used for pre-com- pre-combat deployment training. That is before soldiers actually uh, went to Iraq or Afghanistan. Um I have tremendous compassion for people coming back from the war, they shouldn't have been there to begin with, that are suffering from PTSD, but that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about programs that are uh, designed, uh, and this is the language they use, uh, to optimize warrior performance, to enhance uh, cognitive uh, uh, capabilities, uh, basically to uh, increase uh, uh working memory, and uh, all these kind of cognitive functions in the service of warrior performance, and that translates to killing. Now, the argument uh, the argument that you will hear is that, well, we can prevent Marines from accidentally um, uh, kind of uh, uh, shooting a child because they'll have better self-regulation. And that's great. I mean, there's no doubt that Of course, we we could save one child's life. That's well worth it. But that takes the picture off the larger issues of ethics and how we're using what uh, supposedly is something uh, that comes from uh, the Buddhist uh, tradition, how we have, uh, as you said, weaponized it. And yeah, I also talk about how Buddhists are not angels in this because that's exactly what happened uh, in World War II. Uh, with the Soto and Rinzai sects of Japanese Buddhism uh, m- during Japanese military imperialism, so it's happened before, and that's when uh, basically you take bare attention or concentration, with well, in this case they called it samadhi power, and you distort and you pervert uh, the the teachings. And you saw many Zen priests uh, do exactly that in terms of uh, lifting the prohibition on on killing and saying basically, no, you're not actually killing someone because uh, you're actually uh, you're actually um, showing, uh, uh, this kind of deep uh, experience of emptiness. So, uh, the, you're, when you raise the sword, you're not really actually killing someone. It's actually uh, an expression of compassion. It's a way to repay your debt or gratitude to the emperor. Um, and so, Japanese warriors were actually portrayed as bodhisattvas that were fearless, you know. And, and that to me is, is insane in a way, it's, it's an insane perversion very extreme example of that. But I think you see a a continuum of this kind of um, way of decontextualizing and and de-ethicizing these practices. And one of the reasons is is we've begun to see mindfulness as a state, a state of mind which is purely a physiological uh, state of mind, which... um, Produces a, a certain sort of mental state, and so that completely takes it out of the realm of politics, takes it out of the realm of ethics, and puts it into uh, the realm of technique. When you have a technique, you can separate it from its from the context of nonviolence or the, from the context of ethics, and that's what's happened in in the military.
0: You discuss how mindfulness has been introduced in in the U.S. Congress as well as in in Westminster in the U.K. Um, I think this is a pretty interesting chapter. Um, You're doubtful that politicians practicing or promoting mindfulness will result in a kinder politics or better social outcomes. Why not?
1: Well, yeah, I I, I talk about uh, mindful politics. Um, I take the case of uh, Congressman Tim Ryan, who wrote a book, A Mindful Nation, who uh, basically sees himself, I saw recently an article, as the Zen president. He wants to be the Zen president. Um, but if you look at the book and you read it closely, it's, it's an extremely conservative book, and it's almost a, right out of the neoliberal playbook, in my opinion. Um, he's, he's doing actually uh, the self-help rhetoric is making individuals responsible for their own welfare. Um, there's nothing you know radical in this book whatsoever. And the idea is that I, I refer to it as the as a politics of depth. In other words, what Ryan thinks is that we can solve all our political problems by going a little deeper by by practicing mindfulness. We'll be a little nicer, a little, a little more compassionate, and we can even work better with Trump. He actually says that, and but um, I have my doubts about that. Uh, again, it's a therapy. It's a therapeutic way of uh, reducing politics to therapy, and it's basically kind of a psychologizing of of these problems, reframing these problems as, as, you know, we're not mindful enough, and if we can all just get along, uh, if we just be a little more mindful, we can all get along a a little bit better. So it, uh, it, you know, Ryan comes from one of the most depressed, de-industrialized regions in the United States, where it's um, Youngstown, Ohio, which was, of course, one of the centers for the steel industry. And um, it, it almost looks like a war zone now. And uh, he, he basically makes these um, claims that uh, we can make um, America mindful again, in my opinion. You know, we could reclaim our American values by practicing mindfulness. But there are some political scientists that uh, actually call that into question. Uh, Matthew Moore, who is uh, uh, actually has written a lot about politics and Buddhism. He argues that uh, mindfulness practice may actually harden our opinions, actually. (laughs) It may uh, actually make us more attached to the existing opinions that we have. So, I'm I'm finding it quite kind of uh, hard to to stomach uh, Ryan's proposals about going a little deeper, and then of course in the United Kingdom, um, the United Kingdom, the Mindfulness uh, Nation initiative is, is has been quite popular. In terms, of, I think 200 of the MPs have have gone through uh, some sort of mindfulness program. It's been a focus of a lot of media t- attention with uh, the report that came out uh i think it was back in 2015 the all mindfulness uh, all party parliamentary group uh, basically uh again with their advocating uh is um to make mindfulness more accessible in, in all public sectors and including the private workplace and that the real issue that the only issue we have is that we have to train um, uh, and get uh, adequate funding to train uh, mindfulness teachers so that they can be deployed in public schools in the workplace and in healthcare system. Uh, But again, they adhere exactly to the same sort of uh, privatized uh, notion of mindfulness uh, that is uh, uh, prevalent. Now, one of the things I heard, I just came back from the United Kingdom actually a couple of weeks ago, and I was talking at Cardiff University. And oh. a woman in the audience, uh, told me a story that she said that she had been suffering from, I believe it was anorexia or some, some, something like that, some sort of eating disorder. And, um, uh, she really wanted to get, uh, adequate mental health treatment for this. And, uh, I guess her general practitioner said, well, you can't really get access to that healthcare until you take this mindfulness course. Um, And it was almost like completely contraindicated for what um, she was suffering from in terms of focusing on body sensations and everything, the body scan uh, practice. And uh, that really kind of surprised me that that it's a prerequisite in some uh, healthcare sectors within the United Kingdom that you have to, in order to access uh, the kind of mental healthcare that you desire, you first have to try to take a mindfulness course of some kind. I found that quite stunning.
0: I'd like to end our discussion with a simple question. What's the solution?
1: Mm, What is the solution? Well, I don't think there's one solution. First, I think we have to simply uh, accept the fact that mindfulness, uh, the mindfulness only technique uh, is insufficient to respond to the type of suffering that we're experiencing today in this society that we're living in it's uh, it's a one step in the right direction, but there are a lot more steps to go by not looking at the social determinants of of mental health, for example, which is now becoming much more uh legitimate uh, the World Health Organization the United Nations uh, are now saying that uh you know everything is not a disorder of the individual everything doesn't need to be medicalized and pathologized that we actually need new explanatory uh narratives and new sort of paradigms that can help us to um, deal with uh, social suffering. And that requires uh, an expanded foci, expanded focus beyond the biomedical, beyond the psychological. I like to see mindfulness, um, and I think there are uh, uh, emerging trends in this direction, become a force uh, for social change, Uh, become a civic force. And that requires then um, community formation. We have to put much more energy um, into uh, building community, uh, opening up uh, the avenues uh, for community dialogue around uh, the problems that we face, Uh, and to look more critically and ask more challenging questions rather than... uh, just kind of paying attention to the present moment. I think that uh, we have to go much more beyond just calming the mind. Uh, It's preliminary, it's necessary, uh, but if it's going to become a revolution, uh, it needs to get beyond its conservative uh, tendencies. It needs to really kind of call into question the social and political structures that we're living in. And not be complicit in naturalizing the suffering that um, in, in terms of enabling some of these institutions that mindfulness has found itself in. So I think that requires new frameworks, um, whether we draw from sociology or we draw from anthropology or political science, uh, we certainly need to expand this, the dis- disciplinary scope through which we see mindfulness. And and for for the most part, it's been seen as a biomedical intervention. It's been seen as a clinical and psychological intervention. And those disciplines uh, are uh, traditionally very conservative. So I think by uh, expanding our diagnostic models um, beyond the therapeutic, that allows us then to uh, open up uh, new sorts of collective programs, new sorts of pedagogies. Which can then um, take into account uh, the the entangled nature of suffering uh, and see how it's entangled personally and collectively, and that requires uh, a lot of innovation, a lot of creativity. Uh, that uh, uh, people on the uh, on the on the edges are, are are starting to do that. We could see that um, there was a recent article that came out in Transformation by the people in the, um, mindfulness for social change network, uh, which started in the United Kingdom and they chronicled and had a nice inventory of some of the, I would say more social or civic oriented mindfulness programs that are being experimented with, uh, primarily in the United Kingdom actually. So I I think we can revolutionize mindfulness and, um, turn it into a force that uh, is uh, kind of uh, maybe resembles in some ways a liberation theology in terms of how we can uh, uh, marry together a spiritual practice with progressive and radical action. And again, that really takes uh, a, a new uh, vision, uh, a, a new vision which uh, takes into account uh, the shared vulnerabilities that we all have, and we all experience suffering, but we experience it Differentially, it's not equal, um, and we need to kind of uh, see how mindfulness has been uh, primarily a, a something for upper middle class uh, elites. Uh, a form of white privilege has been uh, something that's been uh, entangled with the mindfulness movement, and that, that well, to disentangle that uh, re- requires a whole different sort of approach that cannot ignore, cannot bypass uh, the interrogation of power and systems. And that requires, again, uh, uh, new forms, new pedagogies. Uh, The eight-week standardized program is not cast in stone. And so there are all different ways that we can approach it that open it up uh to these more uh civic uh and collective and social uh movements towards a more social mindfulness movement
0: well ron i'm pretty sure you're going to have your hands full with this book uh for the foreseeable future but once things quiet down a little bit do you have any projects that you would like to work on i actually
1: want to get back um to my own podcast uh the mindful cranks i have kind of a long queue of people uh that uh, i want to interview so uh, i think that'll be my uh my first priority in the fall
0: well ron i'd like to thank you again for coming on the podcast to discuss your book make mindfulness how mindfulness became the new capitalist spirituality published by repeater books
1: okay thank you alex thank, thank you for having me
0: You've been listening to New Books and Buddhist Studies with Alex Carroll. If you're interested in learning about other New Books and Buddhist Studies, head over to newbooksnetwork.com or search for New Books Network wherever you get your podcasts. Audio used with permission from Musique Delicieuse and is taken from the song Small Flowered by Para Forkuva.